Hong Kong, a fast-moving, shoulder-to-shoulder, skyscraper-lined metropolis of 7.5 million people, for decades a pillar of stability and democratic values in East Asia, but more recently, the centerpiece of global upheaval. From million-person marches and outright urban battle to election victories and political crackdowns, Hong Kong has entered a period of dramatic political, economic, and societal uncertainty. Yet, Hong Kong hasn't always been this way. What changed? What pushed this city to urban chaos and political turmoil? What brought millions of people to the streets in critical movements over the past 20 years? And how did Hong Kong, once a largely barren hillside, become a metropolis of such global significance in the first place? To put it more simply, what is the story of Hong Kong and what is its future? In the next 30 minutes, and we promise just 30 minutes, we'll dive into Hong Kong's story and transformation from strategic colony to economic powerhouse to international symbol of democratic protest, uncertain of its future. We'll proceed in three chapters. In chapter one, we'll tackle the territory's political and economic history. In chapter two, Hong Kong's mass protests and urban chaos, and chapter three, China's newly established power over the territory and its implications for Hong Kong, its people, and its future. By the end of this podcast, you'll be up to speed. Let's get started. Chapter 1. Hong Kong Emerges Hong Kong's modern story begins in 1842, following the First Opium War, when China was forced to seek control of the territory to the British Empire, making it a British colony. At the time, Hong Kong was a largely barren, mountainous island with a population in the low thousands, but its location, just a mile from the Chinese mainland, gave it enormous potential as a gateway for British trade into Asia. Over 50 years later, in 1898, Britain signed a 99-year lease with China for both Hong Kong Island and its northern territories, granting Britain control over what is now modern-day Hong Kong. Until the 1950s, Hong Kong remained largely undeveloped. Although it served as a gateway for traders to access mainland China, Hong Kong continued to have high poverty rates and weak economic, political, and social systems. But by the early 1950s, Hong Kong's economy began to flourish. The end of World War II meant the beginning of increased global trade, and the communist victory in the bloody civil war in mainland China caused thousands of Chinese business people to flee to Hong Kong with their skills, capital, and entrepreneurial spirit. Hong Kong soon saw rapid growth in industry and manufacturing, especially in textiles, plastics, and electronics. In 1947, there were just 961 factories in Hong Kong employing 47,000 people. In 1959, that number was 4,541 factories, employing over 170,000 people. From 1970 to 1990, Hong Kong upgraded its economy from low-grade manufacturing to highly lucrative financial services, such as banking, insurance, and real estate. The territory's low regulations, combined with its proximity and connection to the rapidly growing Chinese mainland, attracted international financial flows and transformed Hong Kong into one of the financial capitals of the world. Hong Kong's growth was meteoric. 
its economy grew over 10% each year from 1976 to 1981. By the mid-1990s, the city of Hong Kong's GDP was equivalent to over a quarter of the GDP of the entire mainland China. Hong Kong looked nothing like the fishing outpost that the British leased from the Chinese in 1898. And by the 1980s, that 99-year lease was quickly coming to an end. In 1982, the British government, led by Margaret Thatcher, and the Chinese government, led by Deng Xiaoping, met for joint discussions and later signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which set the terms for how Britain would hand over Hong Kong to China in 1997, and what Hong Kong's future would be under Chinese rule. One of the most important outcomes of the Sino-British Joint Declaration was the establishment of the One Country, Two Systems principle. Under this agreed-upon principle, Hong Kong would be allowed to maintain relative autonomy from mainland China until 50 years after its handover, 2047. I personally believe that Hong Kong is well-placed for life under Chinese sovereignty, in accordance with a unique concept of one country, two systems. Since China and Britain signed the Joint Declaration nearly 13 years ago, we have worked very hard to ensure that the future special administrative region can effectively practice the promised high degree of autonomy in all spheres of activity other than in defense and foreign relations, which will be the responsibility of China, as they are Britain's responsibility today. Under this autonomy, residents of Hong Kong would enjoy civil liberties and institutions not granted to residents of mainland China, including freedom of speech, press, assembly, and an independent judiciary. Although Hong Kong would be part of China, it would operate under its own governance system, thus creating one country, two systems. It is hard to understate the importance of the one country, two systems principle in modern Hong Kong. While in mainland China, political activism and public protest are almost entirely repressed, residents of Hong Kong enjoy the freedom to protest and to publicly demonstrate. An especially poignant example of this is Hong Kong's annual public candlelight vigil, which draws thousands of people in remembrance to those killed in the 1989 Tiananmen crackdown in mainland China. Meanwhile, demonstrations commemorating the same Tiananmen Square crackdown are banned in the mainland. Exercising the freedoms enshrined through the one country, two systems principle is a way of life for Hong Kong residents. And Hong Kong's system of civil liberties is one reason why majority of Hong Kong residents increasingly identify themselves not as Chinese, but rather as Hong Kongers. But the one country, two systems principle was flawed from the start. Hong Kong's system of political governance, established by China ahead of the handover in the 1990s, has suppressed the full implementation of democracy within Hong Kong and has built in levers for Chinese control. Hong Kong's chief executive, their top leader, must be approved by the Chinese Communist Party, and almost half of Hong Kong's legislative council is not democratically elected, which has led to its domination by the pro-Beijing party. By the early 2000s, Hong Kong's existing system of civil liberties had come increasingly under threat. While China had promised to maintain Hong Kong's autonomy and the one country, two systems principle until 2047, China began to gradually encroach on the city's autonomy from the introduction of various laws that blur the line between Hong Kong and China, to proposals to limit anti-Chinese sentiment in Hong Kong, including a 2012 proposed revision of Hong Kong's education curriculum, while Beijing has repeatedly moved to enforce its one country over the two systems since 1997, 
a majority of those in Hong Kong have refused to accept Beijing's encroachment. Through a series of region-shaking protests, the people of Hong Kong rose up to push back. Chapter 2. Hong Kong Pushes Back The year is 2003, and an estimated 500,000 Hong Kongers have taken to the street to protest. The people of Hong Kong have sporadically protested against mainland China's encroachment on the one country, two systems principle before, but this protest is by far the largest yet. These half a million protesters have gathered to oppose a newly drafted national security law, which would impose crushing sentences on those committing treason, sedition, theft of state secrets, and subversion. The law itself sounds innocuous. Treason, sedition, and theft of state secrets sound pretty bad, right? But the letter of the law was so vague and encompassing that many Hong Kongers feared that this national security law would be used to crack down on political opposition and curb civil liberties. Hong Kong hadn't seen a political movement of this scale in almost 15 years. Chanting, power to the people, these black-clad protesters shut down the city by flooding into highways, metro stations, and public places. Bowing to the protesters, the Hong Kong government shelved the national security law indefinitely. The people of Hong Kong had won, or so they thought. After the massive protests in 2003, smaller protests continued sporadically, as many in Hong Kong continued to call for the establishment of full democracy as well as oppose specific policies such as the proposed overhaul of Hong Kong's public school system, designed to promote a pro-mainland sentiment. But Hong Kong's battles were far from over. The next storm of political opposition came in 2014, in a wave of protests that came to be known as the Umbrella Movement. In 2014, Beijing declared that any candidate running for chief executive of Hong Kong would have to be approved by a body of pro-mainland loyalists. To many in Hong Kong, this announcement went against China's previous promises to move towards full democratization. The reaction to the announcement? When it rains, it pours. Hong Kong took to the streets, eclipsing the 2003 protests in sheer numbers, intensity of protest, and in duration. An estimated 1 million protesters flooded into the biggest districts of Hong Kong, occupying highways, business centers, and public transportation sites. Protesters donned black clothing and carried umbrellas to defend themselves against police chemical sprays. That was Joshua Wong. Joshua Wong was just 17 at the time of the Umbrella Movement, but he acted as a de facto leader to Hong Kong students, organizing protests and civil disobedience campaigns. Wong would later be arrested under largely politically motivated charges in 2017 and 2019 due to his leadership in the protest movement. The Umbrella Movement lasted 79 days, and while it did not achieve its stated aim of reforming Hong Kong's political system, the movement laid the groundwork for the political maelstrom to come. The next major battle came in 2019. That year, the authorities of Hong Kong, backed by China, proposed an extradition law that would allow Hong Kong to extradite people accused of crimes to stand trial in mainland China and Taiwan. The law was inspired by an incident the year prior in which a Hong Kong citizen who committed a murder in Taiwan 
could not be sent back to Taiwan to face charges due to a lack of an extradition treaty, a legal loophole which this extradition law sought to address. The extradition law received strong support from mainland China, which claimed over 300 persons in Hong Kong were fugitives. But China had its own murky history. On multiple occasions, Chinese security forces had allegedly kidnapped Hong Kong residents to forcibly bring them to the mainland to face charges, seemingly targeting Hong Kong residents that had criticized Beijing. This alleged history of the mainland kidnapping Hong Kong political dissidents coupled with the mainland's strong support for the extradition law, generated widespread concern both internationally and within Hong Kong that the law would be used to intimidate Hong Kong residents and bypass Hong Kong's independent judiciary. In June 2019, opposition to the extradition bill, catalyzed by pre-existing tensions between pro-democracy and pro-Beijing political forces since 2014, erupted into a maelstrom of political demonstration and civil disobedience in Hong Kong. For the second time in five years, millions of Hong Kong residents took to the streets on June 9th. Enormous protests lasted throughout the week, grinding Hong Kong's daily business activities to a halt. Numerous cases of excessive police violence against protesters were reported and recorded, including one incident in which Hong Kong police surrounded hundreds of protesters on all sides before repeatedly shooting tear gas into the trapped crowd. On June 14th, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, announced that the Legislative Council would delay consideration of the extradition bill indefinitely. But this indefinite delay was not enough. Despite this announcement, protesters, fueled by online videos of excessive police force, came out in even larger numbers the following weekend. An estimated 2 million people took to the streets on July 16th, an absolutely breathtaking number of people in a city with a population of 7 million. Largely peaceful protests continued throughout June, with protesters now calling for five central demands. First, for the Legislative Council to formally withdraw the extradition law, permanently. Second, to drop all charges against arrested protesters. Third, to retract the characterization of protests as, quote, riots. Fourth, to establish an independent investigation into police brutality. And fifth, to have direct elections for the chief executive and all seats in the Legislative Council. The five demands became the rallying call of the movement. Yet, the government of Hong Kong refused to consider anything other than the withdrawal of the extradition bill. Mass protests continued in Hong Kong throughout July with protesters adopting creative tactics to organize around, adapt, and respond to police presence and the use of force. The protests, still a leaderless movement, adopted Bruce Lee's famous saying, be water, flexible in any situation. Protesters devised ways to organize thousands of participants while avoiding digital surveillance, position themselves into Roman-style phalanxes to avoid arrest, extinguish tear gas using traffic cones and bottled water, and defending themselves against pepper spray of umbrellas. Despite the indefinite delay of the extradition bill a month prior, mass protests continued daily in a pursuit of the movement's five demands. Meanwhile, public support for the mass protests began to waver by August as the protesters had become increasingly violent in recent weeks. Most visibly, on July 2nd, a splinter group of radical protesters wearing all black, gas masks, 
and yellow construction helmets stormed into the legislative council chamber, destroying its interiors and hanging a banner which read, No riots, only tyranny. In the weeks following, publicized incidents of violence against mainland Chinese in Hong Kong spread throughout social media, and protesters violently occupied Hong Kong's primary international airport. Public opinion began to turn again on August 31st, as chilling new video emerged of a special police unit storming a subway train and aggressively and indiscriminately beating protesters with batons and dousing them in pepper spray on the enclosed train. The video sparked outrage and fueled battles between radical protesters and police in subway stations throughout Hong Kong during September. On October 1st, conflict between the protesters and the Beijing authorities was set to come to a head. The day marked China's national holiday, an extremely symbolic event in the mainland which commemorates the establishment of the People's Republic of China. Protests in Hong Kong during China's national holiday would be a direct humiliation to the Communist Party leadership. Would the Beijing authorities take action? Yet, on the day of the national holiday, chaos swept Hong Kong. Radical protesters, armed with Molotov cocktails and increasingly violent tactics, spread throughout the city in groups. The groups destroyed public property, lit fires, and stormed police lines. Sadly, one 18-year-old protester was shot in the chest while rushing a Hong Kong police officer, the first use of a live round since the protest began in June. The boy survived but Hong Kong public opinion became increasingly divided on the tactics of the more violent, younger protesters. Even some fervent opponents of the extradition law saw the increasing scale of violence and urban warfare throughout their beloved city as the wrong path forward. Others still saw the protests as their last stand for democracy in a society increasingly falling towards authoritarianism. While the Beijing authorities did not crack down on the national holiday protests as expected, the brazen chaos of the radical protesters would not be forgotten. The final, dramatic acts of Hong Kong's 2019 protests took place on university campuses throughout the city during November. On November 12, protesters and students occupied five universities, establishing them as bases for protest operations. Facing police opposition, protesters abandoned all but one. Hong Kong's Polytechnic University became the final battleground in the standoff between protesters and police. Thousands of protesters occupied the university and prepared for battle. The result was absolute pandemonium as police forces and radical protesters faced off on an overpass to the besieged university. The police used rubber bullets, tear gas, and water cannons. Radical protesters responded with Molotov cocktails, bricks, and in one case, a bow and arrow. The footage from the evening is jaw-dropping. A video of an armored Hong Kong police vehicle reversing on the overpass engulfed in flames will linger in Hong Kong's collective memory for years to come. The campus standoff ended following a week-long police siege, resulting in the arrest of hundreds of protesters. Amidst the siege, Hong Kong held its first set of municipal elections since the protests began nearly six months prior. The result was an astonishing victory by the pro-democracy movement. 
pro-democracy candidates were elected to 392 seats, with just 60 seats belonging to other parties. These elections served as a vindication of the protest movement's continued popularity despite recent violent events. The protests continued in smaller numbers after the elections, but ultimately withered away due to reports of the growing coronavirus in mainland China during January 2020. The protests dwindled, but the political storm they created in Beijing had only just begun. After suffering a humiliating six months, the Chinese Communist Party began crafting a plan to rein in the rogue city. The plan's culmination in June 2020 would ultimately turn Hong Kong society upside down and send shivers throughout the globe. Chapter 3. Hong Kong's Uncertain Future On May 20, 2020, standing in a brightly lit, socially distanced conference room in Beijing, a spokesperson for the Chinese government officially announced their intention to introduce new national security legislation for Hong Kong. Vague on details, the spokesperson stated that the law would, quote, establish a legal framework and enforcement mechanism for safeguarding national security in the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. End quote. That week, the National People's Conference, China's largely ceremonial legislature, passed the measure nearly unanimously, with 2,878 members voting in favor, six abstentions, and one voting against. With the People's Conference stamp of approval, the government began drafting the law, known internationally as the Hong Kong National Security Law. Critically, Beijing entirely bypassed Hong Kong's own domestic legislature in the creation and passage of the law. The bill was drafted in secrecy and was never made available to public viewing and was officially passed on June 29, 2020, just one month after its announcement. The speed with which the law was pushed through Beijing's bureaucracy was shocking to Hong Kong and the international community. The law's provisions finally revealed after its passing on the 29th of June, were substantially more devastating than Hong Kong oppositionists and international observers had imagined. The law broadly outlaws separatism, subversion, and terrorism, and allows for lifelong prison sentences for those charged under it. To enforce the law, the Chinese authorities created a new police organ tasked specifically with investigating crimes against national security authorized to operate in total secrecy while being shielded from traditional legal challenges. Beijing authorities have the ability to take control of any case and deny basic judicial processes such as the right to a jury. The law was specifically designed to prevent the types of protests from the year prior, as protesters could now be charged with state terrorism for the destruction of public property or even for waving the Hong Kong independence flag. In effect, the special rights and privileges granted to the residents of Hong Kong, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and independent judiciary, freedom of press, were radically curbed in one sweeping piece of legislation. Residents of Hong Kong went to sleep on June 30th with the intrinsic rights they had enjoyed for over 40 years and woke up on July 1st with the possibility of losing them all. Some viewed the one country, two systems principle as effectively dead. 
Public protests against the national security law began immediately, but it was too little, too late. The law had already been passed. That day, 10 protesters were arrested under the new law, one of which was a 15-year-old girl waving a flag for Hong Kong independence. International condemnation and action against the national security law was swift. On July 14th, President Donald Trump announced that the United States no longer viewed Hong Kong as sufficiently autonomous from the People's Republic of China and consequently eliminated a host of preferential economic policies granted to Hong Kong. This meant that Hong Kong could no longer benefit from low trade tariffs or visa-free travel. The U.S. later imposed sanctions on 20 Beijing political authorities and 9 Hong Kong authorities for their involvement in the national security law, including Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam. The United Kingdom responded by opening a path to UK citizenship for a potential 3 million residents of Hong Kong. The European Union and nations such as Australia also condemned the passage of the law. Despite international pressure, Beijing moved full speed ahead with the implementation of the national security law. In early August 2020, authorities arrested pro-democracy media tycoon Jimmy Lai under the law. Mr. Lai's publication, Apple Daily, is the largest pro-democracy newspaper in the territory, and it regularly criticized the Hong Kong government and its Chinese leadership. Lai's arrest signaled Beijing's intent to fully utilize the national security law to curb the democratic freedoms of those in Hong Kong. In December 2020, Lai was charged with endangering national security by colluding with a foreign country and could face life in prison. His trial is set for April. Beijing's crackdown did not stop at Lai. The same day, pro-democracy student leader Agnes Chow was arrested under the national security law and was later joined by other student leaders, including Joshua Wong. In December, Wong was sentenced to 13 months in prison for his role in the 2019 protests, and Chow was sentenced to 10 months. The crackdown continued. In November 2020, Beijing granted Hong Kong's Legislative Council the power to oust other democratically elected members of the legislature. Immediately, four outspoken pro-democracy councilmen were removed from their elected positions. In response, the remaining pro-democracy legislators resigned en masse, leaving the council with only pro-Beijing lawmakers, destroying one of the only remaining elements of pro-democracy voices in the Hong Kong government. In January 2021, Beijing executed its most powerful implementation of the national security law to date. Thousands of Hong Kong police officers were sent to arrest 53 people from across the city on one day. Those arrested included outspoken government critics, pro-democracy lawmakers, prominent lawyers, and scholars. In one chilling day, the national security law was used to wipe out the highest echelons of Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement reflecting Beijing's desire to impose its ultimate authority upon the city once and for all. Most recently, in February 2021, reports of a new law emerged, once again drafted by the Chinese Communist Party. This law would allow the Communist Party to reject any candidate running for public office in Hong Kong should they be deemed not sufficiently loyal to Beijing. This law would eliminate the possibility of another pro-democracy electoral sweep cementing the pro-Beijing nature of Hong Kong's government. So, where does this leave Hong Kong and its 7.5 million residents? What is the story of Hong Kong? And what do we know about its future? The story of Hong Kong is one of rapid transformations. From a sparsely populated fishing outpost to a booming metropolis and global financial capital, from the jewel of democracy and democratic values in East Asia 
to a city of mass political arrests and tyranny of law. From million-person marches to empty city centers. The story of Hong Kong is one of protest, from flooded highways to besieged universities, from candlelight vigils to sweeping election victories. Perhaps most importantly, the story of Hong Kong is one of broken promises. From unlived expectations of civil liberties under British rule, to the failure of capitalism in combating citywide inequality and housing shortages, from the false promise of direct elections and democratic freedoms, to mass protests and crackdowns. From one country, two systems, to one country, one system, no choice. What is the future of Hong Kong? Undoubtedly, the Chinese Communist Party will continue its crackdown upon the democratic freedoms intrinsic to the identity of the city and its inhabitants. The 2019 protests were too humiliating for Beijing authorities to allow again. Faced with this, each of Hong Kong's residents will have to decide how to respond to Beijing's crackdown themselves. There will be those who think that life under the national security law is bearable or even better than the life they had before. Yet other residents will see the law as the end of the city they so loved and may choose to pick up their lives and leave, perhaps seeking asylum in the United States or the United Kingdom. Finally, some dedicated pro-democracy activists will remain, choosing the fight for their city. For these activists, the coming years will only harden their determination to stop the CCP's creeping authoritarianism in its tracks. The results of their efforts are unknowable, but Hong Kong has never backed down from a challenge. As you may have noticed, this episode was different from our normal programming. This episode is part of our new narrative series, Up to Speed, where we will tell the stories of some of the most interesting developments in international affairs. If you like this narrative style or hated it, please let us know. Shoot us an email at hopkinspofa at gmail.com or send us a message on our Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at hopkinspofa. Research, script writing, voiceovers, and audio editing for this episode was done by Megan Rutkai and Zach Wheeler. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.